So this really opens up a lot of opportunity to be able to engage with with the past and even um, to be uh, nimble to receive new understanding, you know, um, for the future. And too often we think about the Reformation as like me and my Bible, (laughs) right? Um, But that's not really how the reformers practice their own and and lived out their faith in their own movement was sort of to listen to all of these, these voices. Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with Dr. Jennifer Powell McNutt about the historical relationship of science and theology and about how we can keep these two modes of inquiry about God's world together, rather than pulling them apart. And as always, if you find the conversation helpful, please take a moment to share the episode or leave us a review. Thanks again for tuning in. I once taught a graduate course at a seminary and began the first class with the following exercise. Tell me five reasons why you believe, and five reasons why you doubt. The seminarians, who were training for various sorts of ministry, did not struggle to complete the exercise. The most common reason for doubt was the prevalence of evil and suffering in the world. But one thing that surprised me was that the second most common reason for doubt was the alleged conflict between Christianity and science. Students wrote things like, God is a hypothesis we can do without. Science and Christianity don't seem to match. Science clashes with Christianity. Anti-science, anti-intellectualism in the church. Faith is contrary to reason. Church versus science. Creation versus evolution. It made for an engaging discussion and raised all sorts of questions about both science and theology. How do we interact with the dominant scientific paradigms of our day? Do we attach our theology to them? Do we show how our theology is compatible with various paradigms? Should we be suspicious of scientific consensus when it seems driven by secular presuppositions? And how do we integrate scientific developments with our understanding of God? These are perennial questions, of course. Many of us could narrate what appears to be a dismal history in the way that Christian theologians have related to scientific developments— Galileo comes to mind. But our guest on today's podcast, church historian Jennifer Powell McNutt, argues that we have tended to read the history in ways that assume an intrinsic conflict between science and faith. And this obscures the great openness towards scientific discovery throughout church history, especially during the Reformation period. Reformed thinkers were quite willing to entertain new scientific discoveries and use them to illustrate their intuitions about our creaturely dependence and God's providential care. That providential love was the deeper magic, the truth at the heart of creation, which would not change despite developments in how we understand the mechanics of the world. And yet it seems to me that we have lost some of this in our contemporary context. 
we sometimes feel threatened by science, and thus we attempt to find scientists who will tell us what we want to hear. We seek scientific arguments to bolster our belief and diminish our doubts. It can become very important for us to think that we have arrived at an airtight, unassailable system of belief, and so we are uncomfortable with the idea of a body of scientific knowledge that is continually in flux. Perhaps part of the problem is our desire for the sort of certainty that belongs only to God. If we had the certainty, surely we would feel more secure. But the truth is that neither science nor theology takes away our humanity. They both begin with an admission of humility, with a kind of faith, seeking understanding. And this brings me back to the opening exercise and to the most common reason for belief among those seminary students. The most common reason for belief was the person of Jesus Christ. And this strikes me as right. Christians start with the confidence that God can be trusted because of Jesus. And we seek to interpret the rest of the world through that lens. Here is the source of our security, our confidence, and our hope as we seek faithfully to interpret the world. I found these words from my mentor Bill Durness to be incredibly helpful. He writes this, We have come to respect great argument and scientific evidence to such an extent that we look there first for religious assurance and comfort. So Christians nervously marshal their evidence, trying to subdue their nagging doubts that their efforts may not be sufficient. We frantically scour history, science, and archaeology for signs that Christianity might be true. Then, when we have carefully constructed our arguments, when our barns are full of them, like the man in Christ's parable, we say, Soul, take your ease. Christianity is true. Are we not like the foolish man who built his house on the sand? No, we do not rest at night because of our wise apologetic, but because our Heavenly Father cares for us and directs the course of creation and history. Because of Him, we can go to sleep knowing that we will wake to a world where science is possible where art is a source of delight, where history is a tapestry meaningfully weaving together all the diverse strands of human life. To that, I can only say, Amen. And I hope you enjoy our interview with Dr. Jennifer Powell McNutt. I'm joined now by Reverend Dr. Jennifer Powell McNutt. Dr. McNutt is the Franklin S. Dernis Associate Professor in Biblical and Theological Studies at Wheaton, and her specialty is church history and Reformation theology. She's published a monograph entitled Calvin Meets Voltaire, The Clergy of Geneva and the Age of Enlightenment. She's working on an Oxford handbook on the Bible and the Reformation, working on another book on Calvin and lots of other scholarly projects. Some of her recent work has dealt with the way that uh, the relationship between faith and science has been understood in the historic Christian church. And that's one of the things that we're talking about today. Jennifer, we are so honored that you've joined us. Thank you so much for having me, Justin. So when we think about the relationship between faith and science, my guess is that most Christians, or many Christians at least, would begin with something like the sense that they are in conflict, even though it occurs to me that there's so much scientific research and innovation that lies beneath you know, a lot of the things we take for granted, like our phones or something like that. So right. would you say, is, is this conflict real or is our picture <laughs> of things wrong? Um, I wonder if you could talk about how we got 
to think about the relationship of faith and science in this way and how this narrative developed? Is there something to it or are these sort of like, you know, we think of the Scopes monkey trial, other mm. myths that have captured our imagination. What, how would you describe the way that this narrative of conflict uh, has emerged? Yeah, thank you. I think it's such an important question today because it does have pretty significant implications um, for how we sort of navigate our world today as Christians. And in fact, I think it is really prevalent, this idea of just a simple story of conflict is a very prevalent reality <laughs> in our world today. I was even thinking about just some of the movies that I watch where that's just like assumed um, and that just reinforces a cultural mentality. It's even something that I expected when I was doing my work on uh, Geneva, the city of Geneva and the church of Geneva in the 18th century. I was really shaped by that narrative as well. And it was a surprise to me when I entered into the archive and to find a much more complex story, a, a different story, even that tends to be how history is, is that it, it complicates our narratives. But the most scholars will say they'll point to the 19th century as a really significant turning point in historiography. So in the history of the history of of this topic of science. And um, there are really two books that are seen as advancing the historical narrative of a conflict and an inherent conflict and a historical conflict between science and the church that has, you know, extended uh, well, well centuries before and has had, you know, long pattern. And uh, that those two books were became very popular and they really shaped a mentality that was going to lead in the early 20th century to the some of the dynamics that we see at work in the Scopes monkey trial. So it seems to me in my own reading of the, the historical accounts that this uh, dynamic of conflict is really mostly a fabrication of 19th century historiography. Are you talking about Origin of Species and the geology? I mean, what were the two books that you're, you're thinking? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. I'm glad you asked. Um, so, oh. the, so there are two books. One is by um, John William Draper that was published in 1874, and it's on history of the conflict between science and church. And the second one is by Andrew Dixon White, which is published in 1896, and it's the history of the warfare of science and theology. Mm. And of course, you were right to bring up, you know, what about Darwin? Um, because Darwin's, you know, book is, is published in 1859. So this is right after mm. the origin of species. And in that context and conversation that's going on, it it can push the idea of Christianity and evolution as uh, in conflict from the beginning, from the perspective of theologians themselves. And so consequently, we can sort of miss some of the stories of people like B.B. Warfield and Charles Hodge and their efforts to sort of accept the scientific evidence of their era as far as they know it and understand it and seek reconciliation with the theology that they affirm and mainly that God, that God is creator. Yeah. So that book hits in a really significant cultural moment and it's, you know, it's a bestseller. So 
Yeah, that's so interesting because I think if you had, you know, not told me what the two books are, I would have just assumed that it's, you know, Charles Lyell's, I think, Principles of Geology, which was a little bit before Origin of Species, and then Origin of Species. I would have thought, you know, these two books, but it, it's sort of like you're pointing out, we don't just have these scientific hypotheses, but we immediately have reflection on sort of the meta narratives of what does this mean for faith and science that are immediately kind of framing it as a conflict. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And history is so important for that reason. And it really can be used in, it it has a utility sometimes to, to advance a certain cause. And so it's one of the reasons why we need to revise, right? We need to rethink, we need to go back to the original sources and assess the data, have we gotten this wrong? You know, um, has this been manipulated in some way? And uh, that's not to say that there was never any conflict. Of course, this is the beauty of, of, of history or of scholarship is that there's nuance and there's complexity. But I think for me, what was so surprising was how willing and receptive the clergy were to receive this, yes, as I said, receptive to, um, in a positive way, to receive the sort of the latest thinking and to to seek to engage in a dialogue with that, the sphere of science. Yeah, I'd love for you to say more of that, because I had this picture in my mind, you know, especially surrounding the move from the earth-centered model to the sun-centered model, you know, so when Copernicus and Galileo begin proposing this new model, which, you know, had been proposed, you know, the ancient Greeks, but had been kind of lost for 1500 years. You know, it was rejected by scientists. It was rejected by theologians. People like to quote Luther and Calvin saying nasty things about heliocentrists, Uh, you know, and so complicate that narrative for me, you know, because my my sense is that, you know, everybody was geocentrist and were resistant to Copernicus, resistant to Galileo, can you just help me with that? What, what, what can we yeah. learn from that episode? How can we have a more nuanced view? And what has your findings with the clergy of Geneva helped complicate that simple conflict you know, thesis? Yeah. Okay. So the first thing I'll say is that, especially with someone like Calvin, he's not really at all engaging this topic. Um, he's just assuming an Aristotelian universe. And this is not a point of antipathy or opposition for him. So that is definitely a a, um, misunderstanding or, (laughs) I don't know, maybe a purposeful misunderstanding. And even with Luther, I think um, the best book for this topic with astronomy and the Reformation is by Charlotte Methuen, um, who is a wonderful scholar and really explores the, the complexity here and puts perspective on what was at stake for Reformation thinkers in terms of astronomy. And and usually it had to do with kind of pushback against astrology uh, more than astronomy, because we have a, the emergence, I would say, of kind of the modern discipline of astronomy, but it's working itself out from astrology. So uh, that's all happening in the 16th century. And it's a bit of a muddle, I'll say. Um, It's interesting to see someone like Philip Melanchthon, who is still reading the stars to understand, but in this case, not to to understand that the star, that we are subject to the power of the stars, but that God is communicating through the stars messages to us. So, and and of course, 
where do they get this from? Well, they get this from the fact that the the star that's over the manger where Jesus is born, you know, so there's this biblical story and evidence, you know, that is that conveys the idea that can't creation communicate God's messages, but they're pushing a, a, against the idea that this creation binds us or, you know, constrains us in a kind of divine way. So, um, so that's one thing that I would establish. And with Luther, I think some of the comments that he makes come out of his table talk. There's one in particular, and there's already a lot of questions about the validity of that source. Um, it, it's a complicated source to sort out because it's really just students' notes mm. <laughs> that are then published, and um, so it's not exactly. Lord help us, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Any professor is like, uh, <laughs> oh dear. So. That's one thing that I'll point out. And I think um, just a few few misconceptions. One is I think that with Renaissance humanism, Renaissance humanism is, is really recovering um, Ptolemy's work on, um, on this issue is published in 1515 in Latin. So that's before Copernicus. So it's kind of a recovery of that, uh, of, a, of a Greek understanding of our world. Um, and so then we see it really supported in the Lutheran context when Copernicus comes up. It's usually a surprise to people that Copernicus's um, work was published by a Lutheran pastor, um, by a man named Andreas Osiander. Um, so there is, again, this a different kind of dynamic, I think, between the clergy and emerging understandings. And I guess the last thing I'll say is in the 16th century, it's really seen to go as a hypothesis and that is permitted, right? That is permitted when you're doing math and when you're, do, you know, when you're studying the world, you're permitted to have a hypothesis. The very last thing that I'll say that is really, I think, important to note is that um, there wasn't some resistance to the idea of displacing the the earth from the center of the universe because the earth is the most important thing and you know the church doesn't like the idea of the earth being displaced because the earth is the center of the universe and god's activity but in an aristotelian understanding the center of the universe is the worst place to be <laughs> And, you know, it's it's the place of corruption. Um, it's the place that requires the most um, actualization in order to move towards its potential. That That's hard to displace that understanding. I think it does kind of align with the doctrine of sin and the reality of how Christians are living out their lives at, at that time. Hmm. So while you're myth busting, let me give you another one, a possible, another possible myth. Um, you know, it strikes me that theology as a discipline is primarily rooted in the past. Uh, mm. we, we read old books. We try to retrieve ancient voices. We place ourselves in historic traditions. We seek to go on in the same way, right, as those who've gone in the past. As I had a, a professor once tell me, theology seeks to be faithful, not innovative. You know, <laughs> And then science, by contrast, is quite invested in the future. It's looking for fresh insights, innovations, new paradigms. And so I wonder, I've sort of thought, maybe some of the antipathy has to do with the difference in posture. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Is that one more myth? Is that something that also needs to be complicated, that theology looks to the past? 
science looks to the future, and that's why you have an inevitable inevitable conflict. What do you think about that? Yeah, thank you. I think it's a that's a really interesting question. So one thing to say, I guess, in that is that whenever we do history, um, we're we're also grappling with mentality and we're grappling with motivations. And sort of reconstructing that is is not a simple process. So it may be that one could come up with an example that would reflect kind of what you're saying. I wouldn't necessarily be surprised by that. And I wonder if too, because not only is theology trying to be faithful, but it also has a message for the future, Mm. right? And it, theology also says, I have the answer about what is to come, right? I know the telos of this whole thing that we're about, But one thing I've observed, at least in that dynamic, is just sorting out jurisdictions. So what's the sphere for my inquiry and for my explanation? And then how does that sphere relate to yours? You know, uh, so if you're thinking about the theologian and the scientist, I think that's where the complexity comes because sometimes there are examples, I think, of the sort of science going beyond its jurisdiction, you know, going beyond trying to make explanations that it, it should not be making. And, and perhaps uh, we could see that from the other side too, theology as well. Uh, I've written and published on Calvin and Luther's readings of Genesis 1, um, in a wonderful book that I would recommend by uh, Kyle Greenwood since the beginning interpreting Genesis 1 and 2 through the ages. So I think it's a really useful book that goes uh, has experts on each of the periods, analyzing it um, for each chapter. In, in the chapter that I was exploring, it, it was pretty interesting to see how Calvin was sorting out Genesis in his commentary. At one point, he's trying to understand clouds. <laughs> he's trying to understand how is it that clouds don't, how is it the water doesn't just engulf us? How is it that that it is held back? And he is working with an Aristotelian understanding of where water rests, you know, um, the different elements, Aristotle's understand the different elements and kind of where they rest. And so he sees it must be God's fine providence, you know, that he's holding back the clouds from, Mm. you know, flooding us and from this water taking over our land. It's a very interesting example, I think, of, you know, he's got the right theological understanding that that our world is in God's hands and that our lives are in God's hands and, you know, God has a plan, but uh, he doesn't quite have the right scientific understanding mm-hmm. and, but it's okay. <laughs> he, he doesn't need to have the exact understanding of how it works. At least that's my sense of it. Yeah. So it's an intuition that is not threatened by if the science changes, there is an intuition underneath there that would continue to be the same if the actual mechanics of what it what it looks like changes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that's from him. He's we can see this in the reform tradition. We see that with the Princeton theologians in the late 19th, early 20th century, too. This idea that scripture is written for, for common people to be able to see the world and to, you know, to make sense of that in the metaphors that are used in the Bible, because 
uh, God's revelation is accessible to us. You know, the what we need to know in order to be saved is accessible. Mm. So I already see him in that early time period sorting that out. And I think personally, I, I think it could be a helpful model for today. Mm. Yeah, you talked about different levels of jurisdiction. And so that brings me to the next question, which is that, you know, in the Reformed tradition, we have this conception of God's two books, the book of creation and the book of scripture. So I read a little bit of the Belgic confession, just because I like to read it anytime I get a chance. Uh, the universe, (laughs) the universe is before our eyes, like a beautiful book in which all creatures great and small are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. And then the confession goes on to say that God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about yeah. the relationship between these two books. I know that there are those who take the second part of it and say, well, more clearly, right? So why do we then need the first, you know, the less clear part more clearly? That's all we need. Can you help us with that? Yeah, the way that Calvin uh, unpacks it is, you know, he starts with the dilemma in the Institutes, book one, chapter one of the Institutes, we begin with our dilemma, you know, which is that, you know, our knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of God are linked. And even says it's hard to know which comes first, um, but they're linked to each other. And we can't separate the two. But our problem is that we don't see ourselves properly because of um, because of the, this fallen world. We don't we don't uh, have a fair perspective of ourselves. And because of that, we don't worship God. Um, We don't appreciate that we are creatures and he is our creator. It could lead you to sort of despair that like Calvin is only negative about human reason. And it's a little bit after that where he begins to unpack what does it mean for our Uh, being made in the image of God for that to have been corrupted by the fall. And one thing that he continues to sort of hold out is that humans are still endowed with reason, um, that that's proper to our, uh, to our human nature. And this is key for him because he wants to say that humans are not animals um, and that we're, we're supposed to understand ourselves and understand ourselves in relation to God. And we're supposed to see God in in the created world. And um, so he maintains that our reason is not lost, right? Um, It's not lost. And this is that concept, I think, that is really more developed in later generations, but this idea of the general grace um, that is bestowed upon all of humanity, that common grace. He calls it general grace, but we call it, I think, common grace more often today. And this is part of, for Calvin, this is a reflection of God's kindness, the gifts that he's given to all humans to be able to use reason. And so that means that any truth that we encounter in this world is is from God. And so he talks a lot about the secular writers and being able to learn from them that the sciences or the knowledge reflects the natural gifts that they, that were bestowed upon them because they're human, right? Because of their humanity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this really opens up a lot of opportunity to engage with the past and even to be nimble, to receive new understanding for the future. Um, and I think it, I really see it as 
part of what it meant for him to be a humanist, you know, to be part of Renaissance humanism that is recovering, you know, uh, Greco-Roman philosophy and the church fathers and the biblical text and all of that is this it's become this rich conversation partner for Christian theology. And too often we think about the Reformation as like me and my Bible, <laughs> right? Um, but that's not really how the reformers practice their own and, and lived out their faith in their own movement was sort of to listen to all of these, these voices. Um, and then I'll just close by saying then there are two other functions that this has. One is creation's witness never ceases. And I love that about what, what Calvin says. Now, creation is going to start to perhaps um, reveal for us the fall. Like when, um, if we look around and we can see creation groaning, we can see creation suffering and longing for restoration. So creation, whether it, it shows its majesty, but it also shows its fallenness as well. And that, that concept is really developed, I think, more in the 17th century based on Calvin's thought. We see that in some really interesting ways. So then the what ends up happening for Calvin is because creation does not cease to bear witness, then it is through our relationship with, with Christ that our eyes are really open to the fullness of that witness. Um, whereas the secular writers can kind of explain this is how it works, you know, and that can be true or not, <laughs> um, the, the Christian can see what the greater purpose of it is to be, which is, in Calvin's words, a mirror, right? It's supposed to be a mirror pointing us beyond ourselves to this creator God. And so I would say that the two books function by confirming each other, but there is a hierarchy. And the hierarchy is that theology is first, and then creation confirms what has been revealed to us. And so there's always, in terms of jurisdictions too, there's always going to be a different dynamic between theology and the scientific realm, because the scientific realm is only based on observations, on human observations and reasoning. But theology has God's <laughs> breaking in revelation that we must uh, take into account, even as we are affirmed in looking around our world and seeing a confirmation of God's activity. Yeah. So you mentioned that Calvin has simultaneously this very strong view of depraved human depravity, or at least pervasive depravity, not that we are as bad as we could possibly be, but that sin yes. has saturated everything. Yep. And at the same time, he's a humanist and is quite willing to use pagan sources, you know, and have confidence in scientific methods. Uh, so how do we put those two things together? The suspicion that we sometimes have towards human knowledge, um, especially yeah. when we don't like it. Uh, and then also <laughs> at the same time, confidence in scientific methods that make the world better. How do those two things kind of come together? Yeah. With just also a posture of humility at what we can know as creatures rather than being the creator. Yes, exactly right. The first thing I would say is I think that it's the kind of complexity of affirming this and also being cautious is present in and reflected in Calvin's own theology, in Christian theology, let's be honest, in that there is faith-seeking understanding, right? We, we are encouraged to seek understanding, and yet there is mystery, right? And there is also the dynamic of 
of sin that should should lead us to be careful too, to be cautious, to be humble in, in what we know and how we proceed. And so I see that already in Calvin's theology. I see that in how he formed the church and how he thought about the structures of the church. And I think that these can be uh, good attitudes and postures that we should employ when we engage scientific activity or when we receive scientific uh, studies or hear about scientific discoveries, that sort of thing, that just to recognize that there is, there's a process to it. um, You know, I immediately thought of recategorizing dinosaurs or recategorizing planets or rethinking things like how uh, old the universe is. You know, um, there's got to be space for thinking through and, and evaluating and judging those things. And that's okay. Um, but we need to also have, I think, a, a system of checks and balances. And I, I see this, again, jumping back to the church, I see this in Calvin's own church is thinking about not wanting to have just one person in charge and deciding everything, but having, you know, a, a committees, a group of people. And there's a lot of jokes about that, right? The reform tradition and our committees and how much we love our committees. And they don't always work, but nonetheless, uh, it can can really protect, I think, the decisions that are being made. And similarly, within the scientific world, I was just watching a really interesting show on Hulu called Dope Sick, which is all about the story of Big Pharma. And one of the things that it was showing was you know, just how easy it was to kind of take from things that actually weren't scientific studies and sort of spread this information inappropriately. So we got to go back to the original sources. We need to make sure that our process of study is sort of protected, is honest, is transparent. And uh, just as that can help in the life of the church, I think it's also important in the scientific world. But we don't want to get to a point where I don't want to just wholesale accept everything that the scientific world is saying. You know, there needs to be some inquiry and some some study of that. But on the other hand, there's really no reason to have such a significant distrust, uh, such an extreme distrust as well. Um, so those are some of my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Okay, so one of the issues that's pretty relevant these days is the role of pastors when it comes mm-hmm. to advising people on, let's say, public issues uh, <laughs> that requires some degree of scientific competence or professional expertise. And I've heard this phrase, epistemic trespassing, which is when a person who's a specialist in one area, like Christian theology, for example, illegitimately claims expertise in another area. But it strikes me that pastors and also theologians, we all often are asked to be generalists and to give biblical and theological perspectives on a wide variety of issues. I mean, one of the things I like about theology is that we're asked to theologize about all of life, right? So how, how do we move forward with this where we admit that we are not scientific experts of, yes. <laughs> at the same time we're we're trusted you know by mm-hmm. people to give some sort of counsel in making decisions so how how would you advise yeah. how would you advise pastors and church leaders to move forward with this yeah thank you so much and i'll just start first by saying that that i really i've bumped into this in my own work because i can't you know i don't have the knowledge or training to to explain 
how and why things work, um, it, you know, in these different scientific experiments or whatever, all the particulars of it, I can sort of describe it to you, but I don't really understand all the ins and outs that like a scientist would understand. Um, and uh, so it's interesting too how my work has tended to focus on attitudes. So more on the relational attitude. So just being receptive and even popularizing and sharing the latest research and supporting. It's kind of been more like clerical support of the scientists in, in society and culture. When the community, especially in cases when the community is in danger, right? When the community needs some sort of like medical care. Um, there's actually a lot of points of continuity between some of the dynamics in 18th century Geneva over smallpox inoculation and some of the things that we see in our world today. So that that's one thing. I think that the church needs to find a, a careful, appropriate, humble way to engage in the conversations that are going on in the scientific communities. And, and also with some of the sort of rapid developments and experimentations that are going on, because I think that in some ways that the, the touch point is in ethics, right? The touch point is often in ethics and as Christian theologians, and, you know, <laughs> we need to be able to speak into ethical issues. So uh, we can't just ignore the scientific world. Um, we shouldn't, I don't think that we should, but we should respect um, expertise and authorities as well. Um, I've seen this done in a variety of different ways in my own church, but um, one example was to bring in um, or to have one of the congregants who is a, a, a scientist to be interviewed and sort of talk about some of these issues. I see this as adult education opportunities. Um, we need, you know, it, at a time when our churches are doing less of that. <laughs> Unfortunately, we, I really think we need more. Uh, we need more of that to make that a priority to help people sort out their world because they are not living in the world in such isolated, independent ways. It's it's one experience for them. And um, so the church needs to help model that. I try to do that in my own ministry, um, in my own preaching, in the pulpit. I have tried to always include, if possible, and if appropriate to the text. <laughs> That's my caveat. Uh, a sort of a, a scientific story. Sometimes with a, as a, using it as a metaphor, sometimes as a way to highlight, you know, a side of Christ, of the relationship between Christianity and science that, that most people don't hear about. So for example, I've talked about microplastics as a, examples of the prevalence of sin in our world. Um, or I've talked about um, when NASA was sort of uncovering that the the universe has, I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain this, <laughs> but anyway, the universe has like, um, makes a sound, right? It makes a sound um, and that it sounds like singing. And so uh, you can, you can listen to the singing of the universe hmm. uh, on YouTube and NASA has these recordings of it. And so I use that to co coincide with the Psalms. We think about how all creation is proclaiming God um, and sort of linking it with that or uh, talking about the astronaut's faith. And I really like astronomy. So <laughs> I talk a lot about that. Um, so I think it's, it is modeling integration. It is engaging with the metaphors that are, that are available and possible to us. And it is also appreciating sort of expertise. 
before I ever speak on if I'm going to have to kind of talk about the precision of something with math or whatever, I will ask a friend, hey, does this communicate it correctly, you know, um, and just kind of have somebody review it. And that's what really any good, any scholar should do is have you know, an a peer evaluating kind of how they're communicating, how they're understanding something. So, yeah, that's so helpful. I love that you say that the focus is on kind of relational attitudes and postures. And, you know, I'm hearing the posture of wonder, you know, I'm hearing, you know, that sense of, yeah, like I always say, what we do is important, but why we do it, you know, is, is maybe even more important. You know, what is yeah. really driving us? Is it, is it love or is it suspicion and, and despair and cynicism? You know, I think being able yeah. to answer those questions are things that theology can really help us help us with uh, as we evaluate the battles that get waged in our society. Well, I think that's exactly right. Is you know, we're as Christians, we're constantly battling against, you know, just a very a utility um in in a way that might favor power, that might favor money, um, when we are called to uh, live a life of love. You know, that doesn't mean we, we, we check our brains at the door, <laughs> but it, it does mean that, that our, lives is our lives are not for ourselves. We are actually meant to live for God and for our neighbor. So our guest has been Reverend Dr. Jennifer Powell McNutt. And we've been talking about the relationship of faith and science. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andrea Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist. And thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue and the production team at the Andrea Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in.